Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Leslie McClurg in for Alexis Madrigal. Slamming a bedroom door is one of the first signs a young person is entering puberty. Then the body starts to change, periods, wet dreams, acne, and wild mood swings. On top of that, today's tweens are also navigating social media, an obesity epidemic, and a culture of toxic achievement, making a complex stage of life even more challenging. The authors of a new book, This Is So Awkward, Modern Puberty Explained, will join us to help families navigate this tricky time in kids' lives. That's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Alexis Madrigal. I was a bit of a late bloomer sexually. And this really pleased my mother because her baby was safe, but it really worried my father. And so one day when I was almost 20, he pulled me aside and he asked me if I'd had sex yet. I said, no. And he said, are you a lesbian? And I kind of stammered nervously. No, I don't think so. I kind of wanted to scream. It's none of your business. And then he said, well, you're missing out because sex is fun. I was completely horrified. And that was the extent of our sex talk. Our guests today are going to teach us how to navigate puberty conversations a lot better than my dad did. They are the authors of This Is So Awkward, Modern Puberty Explained. We're joined by Vanessa Troll Bennett and Kara Natterson. They're the co-hosts of the Puberty Podcast and co-founders of Order of Magnitude. It's a company dedicated to flipping puberty positive. Kara is also a pediatrician. And so let's start with you, Kara. You both opened the book, um, basically pointing out that puberty is starting a lot earlier and it's lasting longer. So what do you mean there? And, and do we have any idea why? I'm going to answer, but I'm going to start by giving your dad big props for trying his best to get into conversation <laughs> with you. That so was an awkward. amazing way into this conversation. So yes, puberty is starting earlier than it did a generation or two ago. That data is actually not very new. We've known since 2010 that the average age for a girl to enter puberty in this country is between eight and nine. And for a boy, we got this data in 2012, it's between nine and 10. So it's been more than a decade that that information has been out there, but it's not really out there. And what has happened since is that we've started to understand that the process is not, in fact, going faster it is going slower. It starts earlier, 
but it progresses at a slower rate so that the whole path through puberty, instead of being a three or four year sprint, lasts closer to a decade. And of course, there's the cell phone involved. And do we have any idea why this change is happening? So there are a lot of people looking at that question, trying to answer it, and it looks like there are three pretty strong components that are layering to create this phenomenon. So the first one is it's all of the things that we put into and onto our bodies that have endocrine-disrupting functionality. So the hormones, the sex hormones that help your body go through puberty are impacted um, significantly by um, several different types of chemicals. The problem is we don't know exactly which ones are the lowest common denominator. The second big driver is stress. We know that cortisol, which is the hormone that responds to stress in our body, also seems to tip kids into puberty. So we know there is a very strong connection between stress and puberty. We don't understand it um, as deeply as we would like, but we know that they are connected. The third, and this is where the data is the newest, is on antibiotics. Uh, We know that antibiotics play a role here, but it's not the antibiotics you might take for strep throat or an ear infection. It's the antibiotics that are going into the feed and therefore into the uh, food that we are putting into our bodies that seem to be interfering with this process. Vanessa, it would seem difficult then to protect yourself from all three of those forces. I mean, you could try, but that's kind of impossible in today's world. So is there anything bad about puberty lasting so much longer and starting earlier? We are really trying to approach this from a constructive and positive light because the fact is there's a lot more research and data we need. And there are millions of kids in this country staring us in the face, asking to be cared for and raised in loving, supportive, and constructive ways. So what we can do is we can care for kids in a way that acknowledges that they are the age they are, not the age they look. So one of the hardest challenges for adults with earlier puberty and longer puberty is that you look at a kid and they might be 11, but they look what we would imagine to be a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old to look. And so The incongruity makes it hard for adults to think, oh, well, this kid looks like I would imagine a teenager to look when I was growing up, and yet they're a middle schooler. And so my expectations of them developmentally, behaviorally, organizationally, sexually, all of those things actually have to be scaled back to their chronological age, not their pubertal development. And Cara, if we just kind of want to break it down a little bit scientifically or, or, or even socially, what exactly do we mean by puberty? What exactly starts this process? And when do we know when it's over? It's such a key question because the narrow definition of puberty is just the path to sexual maturation. So a body that could not potentially make a body becoming a that could not potentially make a baby becoming a body that could potentially make a baby. That's sort of the the narrowest definition of puberty. But we know that the sex hormones that govern those changes also circulate in and around the brain. They impact mood. In fact, one of our favorite quotations is from an endocrinologist, San Francisco endocrinologist, actually, who I trained with at UCSF many years ago named Louise Greenspan. She's amazing. And she's the one who coined the phrase that the first sign of puberty is often a slamming door. 
those moods are very real and they're a result of swings in sex hormones. So we know these hormones then incorporate some of the emotional and social shifts that we used to call adolescence, but now we recognize there's a huge overlap between those terms. So what used to be separated into two terms really belongs under one single umbrella. When you look at the very first signs of puberty, we do believe mood swings are the easiest ones to pick up on. They look different in different kids, so they can swing outward, they can cry more or laugh hysterically at something that's not that funny. They can also go silent or get angry more easily. If you're looking at physical development, it's breast budding for female bodies and it's penile and testicular growth for male bodies. But the penile and testicular growth can be really slow. And if kids are getting private at that age, which they often do, it can be really hard to know that that's going on. I love that they're going to laugh louder. I'm so scared of this <laughs> period because I have a four-year-old and I'm like, no, I just want you to be this cute, adorable little gushy little thing that I, you know, just pour my love into. And then the day she slams that door, it's going to break my heart. Vanessa, do you have any advice for parents like me who are petrified of this phase? So we hear from parents a lot that they are absolutely terrified for their kids to enter this stage. And we will tell you, take heart, because there are so many wonderful things about kids this age. Yes, it's like having a new person living in your house, and we completely get that. But also, they're funny. They're interesting. They are brutally insightful and terrifyingly honest. And it makes for a fairly lively household. I think the hardest part is when kids go quiet and parents who used to be able to access their kids and be in conversation with them and engage them struggle to reach their kids. And they feel like they're behind a brick wall all of a sudden after having these lovely little snuggle bugs, they can't reach their kids. And so we have a lot of advice in the book, and we can talk about a few of the pointers here about how to reach kids who feel unreachable. Because even though it feels like they don't want us around and they don't need us and they don't crave connection. They actually really need us at this time, but they're confused and they're going through transformation themselves and they're not really sure how they need us or how to ask for our help or support. I want to get into all that. We're talking about how to navigate modern puberty with the authors of the new book, This is So Awkward, Modern Puberty Explained. They are Cara Natterson, a pediatrician, podcaster, and author of 10 books, including the New York Times bestselling series, The Care and Keeping of You and Guy Stuff, and Vanessa Kroll Bennett, co-host of the Puberty Podcast, and they are, again, authors together of the book that we're talking about today. Uh, Vanessa, just where you trailed off there, what how do you suggest or you know encourage folks parents who kind of lose their children to silence and and you know hiding in, inside the rooms what's your best advice there so our best advice is to get interested in what they are interested in because kids this age do have great passions and interests they might not be naturally interesting to us as adults right makeup tutorials on tiktok or fantasy football leagues but they are interesting to the kid, and we have to meet kids where they are, not where we wish they were. And so the conversations are not about the latest New York Times article. The conversations might be about something silly and ridiculous that happened in the lunchroom or something that happened um, amongst friends or something that's going on in a TV show they're binging on Netflix. And 
getting curious about their lives and meeting them there, I think, is a great way to start to forge connection. It also is about picking your moment. So when a kid comes home from school and they are exhausted and absolutely drained from the day, that is not the moment to pepper them with a thousand questions about the tests they took or the game they played or what grades they got or did they make, you know, the band or anything like that. That is a moment to give them a break and let them breathe and give them a chance to come to us or at least come and find them when they've had a chance to eat and have some water and take a shower and then we can approach them. And I'm going to jump in and add that if the kid in your life, and it's not necessarily the kid in your house, because this book was not a parenting book. This book is for any adult who is involved in the lives of any tween or teen. If the kid in your life is literally closing the door and they just are shutting the world out and that is their mood of the moment, you can go to the other side of the door and just let them know you're there. You can sit down on the other side of the door and say, quite literally, I'm here. I'm going to hang out here for five or 10 minutes. And if you want to have a conversation just like this through this door, I am game for that because some kids really need to not have you in their space, but they need to know that you want to be in their life. Oh, that rings so true. It almost brought tears to my eyes to think about if my mom would have done that during those times where I was shutting the door in her face, but actually really wanted contact with her. Again, we're talking about how to navigate modern puberty with the authors of the new book, This is So Awkward, Modern Puberty Explained. They're Kara Anderson and Vanessa Kroll Bennett. We want to hear from you. Are you a young person? How would you describe puberty and what has it been like for you? Are you a parent? What kind of questions do you have about puberty for our experts? Have you noticed? Is it a lot different for the kids now, today, than it was for you? Again, what advice do you want from our experts about how to navigate this tricky time? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Or email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. This is Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Alexis Madrigal. And we're talking about how to navigate modern puberty with the authors of the new book, This is So Awkward, Modern Puberty Explained. They are Cara Natterson, a pediatrician, podcaster, and the author of 10 books, including the New York Times bestselling series, The Care and Keeping of You and Guy Stuff. And Vanessa Kroll Bennett, she's co-host of the Puberty Podcast. And Vanessa, I want to hear this story that you have in your book. Uh, Tell us about the first time that you 
or that your 10 year old, excuse me, brought up sex? Oh, wow. So this is a great story to give anyone hope who screws up when answering a kid's question because, boy, Leslie, did I blow it so big. So the first conversation with my oldest child when he was 10 about sex was when he was reading the sports section in the newspaper and asked me, hey, mom, what's rape? Mm -hmm. And I was busy trying to get breakfast ready for his three younger siblings, and it was a Sunday morning, and we were rushing off to a soccer game. And what did I do? I gave him a totally incomplete and rushed answer, which was, oh, well, rape is when a man forces a woman to have sex. So there are so many things wrong with that response. It is embarrassing for me to even share the story, but I did it purposefully in the book because I want people to realize that they can mess up and take a do-over, which is exactly what I did. So three hours later, yes, three hours later, I realized that A, rape is not gendered in that way, so that was wrong. B, I had never talked to my kid about sex before. This was our very first conversation about sex, and I didn't define what sex was. I just assumed he knew, and I gave him no context, no definition. I didn't even say to him, hey, do you have any questions about that? Because that's a big statement I just made. So there are a million lessons that I should learn from that particular day that I have carried with me. But most importantly, it is define the terms that you use with your kid. And B, we gender a lot of conversations that are not gendered. They are across all genders. And it's really important that we be inclusive in good and, sadly, in this case, not good ways um, when we talk about aspects of puberty and sexuality. Well, Caro, I think parents, many parents, including myself, are terrified of some of these conversations and these bridges that we're going to have to try to cross with our kids. But there are ways that these conversations can go really well. You sort of outline a lot of these fundamentals. So what is, what's some of the advice that you offer in terms of how to lay the land well as you navigate these trickier topics? My favorite way into a conversation when it's prompted with a question is to get clarity on what they're asking. So no matter what the question, you can find me saying, that's so interesting. What makes you ask that? And that way it contextualizes and you have a sense of what they need answered. Because even if two listeners have kids the exact same age, raised in the exact same community, going to the exact same school, what they know and their context of why they're coming to you with a question might be entirely different. So we love it when the adults receiving questions can frame the question or reframe the question so that they can give the kids the right answer. Another, another sort of tried and true is to listen more and speak less. So when you're prompted with a question or when there's a teachable moment, when you're walking down the street and you see a billboard or when you're watching a show and there is an image that comes up or there's a conversation that's had and it's an in into one of these topics, you can grab the teachable moment, but it's not a lecture. It's not a one-way conversation, right? It's a two-way conversation where you're doing less of the talking and more of the listening. 
partly because you're going to begin to understand what their knowledge base is. Also because the language and the social norms have really changed. And it's amazing to hear what they have to say about their lived experience or the circulating knowledge on any given topic. Well, let's bring a caller into the conversation. Uh, Paige and Los Altos, you're on the air. Welcome. Hi, um, thanks for taking the call. Um, I just wanted to offer that um, I had a contemptuous relationship at 14, 15 with my mom. And when I was fortunate enough to have a child, um, I sure didn't want to repeat that with her. And I fortunately ran into the book that's uh, about anagrams. Are you familiar with that term? I am. Our guest, have you have you heard of the word or the the sort of categorizing called enneagram? No. All right. <laughs> A lot of our listeners might not. Yeah, but keep going, Paige. Yeah. So it's um, essentially it's a personality typing. Um, system. And there's a book called uh, Enneagram in Love and Work. Um, and it is, there's many books and it's many interpretations of it, but it's, it is really helpful to be able to find your own self and then realize how differently each of us process anything, mostly around this subject might be fear and uncertainty. And, uh, you know, when you get stressed, every one of us reacts differently. Um, under that kind of stress. So when I figured out who I was, um, then I offered it to my daughter and said, read this passage. She's like, oh, God, that sounds so much like you. And I said, why don't you find yourself? And she read it and found herself. And we realized how radically differently we approach things like that, uh, you know, how, and how we're affected by stress. So once we figured it out, we could say, we could laugh and go, wow. I'm sorry, I'm asking you, Ellie, to, you know, process this like a, a seven myself. And she'd say, and she'd say something and I'd say, oh, God, that's just like a four. And we would laugh. And it opened up the conversation and really changed my relationship with her forever. And I love it because of that. I, I wish every adult who has kids would learn about the Enneagram and, and invite that conversation Awesome, Paige. Thank you so much for that comment. I, I mean, I think even if you don't use the Enneagram, what I'm hearing there in her story, Vanessa, is really getting to know how differently or really paying close attention to how your child is processing and taking in the world and how that might be really different from your way. Like, for example, my daughter is quite introverted and I'm quite extroverted. And already she's only four and it, it's different for when we go to a party. I have to be much more sensitive to her getting overwhelmed. So how do you suggest parents, maybe especially at puberty, get to know and really kind of take in or, or be able to pay closer attention to how their kids are processing the world around them? Yeah, I mean, one of the most important parts of caring for a kid in puberty is leaving our own baggage at the door. And our pasts, our memories, our personalities, our successes, our failures, our traumas, God forbid, right? Those all inform the path we've walked through life. And yet, if we carry all of that baggage into the conversations with our kids, that's a lot of heavy baggage for them to carry on top of the, their own journey and the arduousness of being an adolescent. And so, like the caller mentioned, she figured out who she was. She figured out how that did or didn't help or support or tie into how she's going to care for her kid. And she left part of herself 
separately so that her daughter could be who her daughter was naturally. And I think so much of these conversations depends on personality and temperament and context and community, right? There's no one size fits all to how to go about caring for kids in this stage and how to go about having these conversations, which is why we offer so, so many ways in. Because not only do personalities differ, but like what worked last week might not work this week. Your kid is constantly evolving and changing. And so we have to be nimble and flexible and innovative in how we reach them and and connect with them. So leave your baggage at the door and be willing to pivot and be flexible in your approach with, with your kid. Again, we're talking about how to navigate modern puberty with the authors of the new book, This is So Awkward, Modern Puberty Explained. They are Cara Natterson and Vanessa Kroll Bennett. And we want to hear from you. Are you a young person? How would you describe puberty and what it's been like for you? Are you a parent? What kind of questions do you have about puberty? Are you losing your your children to this stage? Or maybe you're making incredible successes. Tell us about it. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. Or you can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or at KQED Forum. A listener writes, we have an 11-year-old daughter who looks like a teen and wants to be a teen. We want to approach her like she's 11, but this makes her really mad. Do you have any advice? Cara? This is a really, really tough question, and I'm going to frame it in the exact opposite way as well, which is the 11-year-old who looks eight and wants to be treated differently as well, right? So um, kids who look older than they are sometimes are asked by the world to level up because they look older than they are, and then they have this expectation that the adults in their world will give them more freedom, more responsibility. Their brains are not ready for that. When kids are late bloomers, and just because puberty is happening earlier doesn't mean there aren't late bloomers, there still are. Two and a half percent of all kids qualify as being the last two and a half percent to get to puberty. That's what a late bloomer is. Those kids are actually, they tell us they're downright offended when they're treated the way they look because they're infantilized or, you know, given no credit for the way their brains work. So we really feel strongly that when you are helping to raise a child through the tween and teen years, that you treat them the age they are. You respect the fact that their brain is capable of making certain judgments, but not others, certain good long-term decisions, but not others. It is too much to put on a kid the responsibility of acting older than they actually are. The way in the conversation with kids is to explain the why. Explain to an 11-year-old why it is unfair as the adult to treat them as if they are a teenager. And even if they don't agree, it opens up the door to a back and forth and a conversation I will say, though, this is a really different world than the world that we were growing up in. And what it means to treat someone as if they're older looks different, right? So I didn't grow up with a cell phone or a laptop or any kind of digital connection to anyone. So with my own kids, it was confusing to figure out what the rules should look like around age and stage when I didn't have any of that lived experience. And so you're going to mess it up. As the adult, you're going to try making certain rules or setting certain parameters, 
And occasionally, the kids are going to push back, especially if you've brought them into the conversation, and they're going to give you a rationale for why you should do it differently. And having that flexibility that Vanessa talked about is key because we have to give ourselves permission to recognize that the world has changed and we're not always going to set the right limits the first time around. Well, let's go to a caller, uh, Gloria, in San Francisco. You're on the air. Hi. I was um, wondering about at what age it's appropriate to talk to your you know, child about sex. Um, my kid's eight. He'll be nine in like a week. So I heard you say that you were talking to your 10-year-old about you know, rape and, and then it led to sex. But is that too early normally? Is that the right age? Like at what age is it technically sort of appropriate? Would you deem it appropriate? to start talking about, like, you know. We like to think of this, Gloria, as, like, a spiral. And the spiral starts small and low, and it's with really basic information. So with babies on a changing table or toddlers, you're using correct anatomical vocabulary. And then with kids in kindergarten or grade school, you're getting at issues of consent. Um, respecting other people's body, requiring consent when someone touches your body. Um, And those are the building blocks for conversations about, quote-unquote, sex, but they're really about bodily autonomy, a sense of agency, and a sense of respect for others. Now, as kids' bodies start to change at 8 and 9 and 10, those are conversations where you can have about changing bodies. It doesn't have to be about sex. I mean, listen, I would never have chosen to have a conversation with my 10-year-old about rape had he not asked me the question explicitly and pointed to me exactly the article that he had been reading that led to the question. I would have chosen to have the conversation a different way, and it would have been more about changing bodies and what does that mean. I, um, we have kids who ask us, ask us, what is sex? And you can give them a two- sentence answer, and that's it. And then they're like, okay, thank you very much. I don't want to talk to you about this for a year. And they go on their way. So anatomical language about body parts, conversations about consent that have nothing to do with sex, conversations normalizing changing bodies of all different genders and all different timelines. Those are the building blocks. And then conversations about sex itself, intercourse, and all the different kinds of sex that people have that can come down the road um, in the following years. I mean, I'll jump in and add that what complicates this answer is the data we have around the viewing of pornography. So Common Sense Media just put out a study earlier this year that documented what so many of us who work in this space knew anecdotally, which is that the average age for a child to be exposed to pornography is 12. And so 50% of all kids under the age or at the age of 12 have been exposed. Under the age of 12, when you look down to 10-year-olds, 15% of 10-year-olds are telling researchers that they have been porn exposed. Some of it, much of it is accidental. They're stumbling across it. Someone else is showing it to them. But they live in a digital world. And these are the images that are seen across all sorts of platforms. So that complicates the timeline of this conversation because if the adults in these kids' lives do not start to have the conversations with those kids about what these terms mean 
and what sex is and what consent is and what pornography is, what ends up happening is that by 12, half of them have seen imagery, um, often video, often violent or aggressive or non-consensual, that is writing a story of what sex is supposed to be before anyone has ever talked to them about it. So it's a, you know, the starting point is usually a little bit younger these days than, uh, than any of us would like, frankly. But it's pretty important to toe into those conversations, especially as they get more and more access to devices and digital platforms. Well, Jeff writes, is there a correlation between young people entering puberty early and coming out as transgender earlier? Vanessa? Not, we don't have any data that indicates that there's any correlation. Fair, fair. We're talking about how to navigate modern puberty with the authors of the new book, This is So Awkward, Modern Puberty Explained. They are Cara Natterson, a pediatrician, a podcaster, and the author of 10 books, including the New York Times bestselling series, The Care and Keeping of You and Guy Stuff. Vanessa Kroll Bennett is the co-host of the Puberty Podcast and, again, author of the new book, This is So Awkward, Modern Puberty Explained. We want to hear from you. Are you a young person? How would you describe puberty and what it's been like for you? Are you a parent? What kind of questions do you have about puberty? Have you noticed that it's different for your kids than it was for you? What has it been like to navigate puberty with in the age of social media? I would love to hear about that for parents. Uh, give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. Or you can email your comments and your questions to forum at kqed.org. You can find us on all the different platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're at KQED Forum. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Alexis Madrigal, and we're talking about puberty with the authors of This is So Awkward, Modern Puberty Explained. They are Cara Natterson, she's a pediatrician, and Vanessa Kroll-Bennett. They are both the co-hosts of the Puberty Podcast. And I'd like to go straight to a caller, uh, Ethan, in Santa Rosa. You're on the air. Ethan. Hi. Good morning. Um, just a comment. Uh, 
when my daughter had her first period, it was, I believe she was 12 years old. Um, she was in the bath, bathroom at home. We opened the door crying, yelling for her mom. We both went to the door, see what was wrong. And my wife looked at me and said, I'll handle this. She goes inside, just kind of gives, coaches her on what to do. Then she comes out of the bathroom, comes to me and tells me what's going on. So we both decided, let's, let's, let's do a celebration. So we went to the store and got her a red velvet cake. And after dinner that night, we celebrated her first uh, period of her life. So... Beautiful story, Ethan. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. Red Velvet Cake is so appropriate. Uh, let's go, or no, actually, I, I love this comment from a listener writes, I had a very different adolescence. I grew up in the Bay Area as the son of a single mom, and when I came out as gay at 17, she was amazingly accepting. I've had several f friends whose children are coming out as queer or non-binary, and I read that an increasingly higher percentage of kids are making this choice in our current social climate. Can your experts comment on the complexities of gender identity emergence as a factor in this phase of life? And how do we address individually and collectively the alarmingly high rate of suicidality in this demographic? Uh, maybe Kara on the, on the first one and, and then potentially Vanessa on the, on the suicide. So Kara on gender. Yeah, so, and let me, let me start by saying, I think the, Ethan's comment dovetails into this beautifully because what that comment shows is that um, gender does not have to play a role at all in being part of the conversations and celebrations of the transformations that happen during this stage of life. So uh, that was an awesome comment. Um, you know, we write a lot about gender in our book. Um, we do keep it separate from sexual orientation, which we also write a lot about. Um, but um, the the two get lumped together for um, a lot of good reasons, actually. But uh, we keep them separate because the topics are different. Um, we do know the data does show that when you look at people identifying as um, trans, that 20 percent of the people who identify as trans are between ages 13 and 17. And that data brings up a lot of questions about what it actually means um, is it that people are um, looking to change their pronouns? Is it that people are gender questioning? Is it that they are expressing themselves across the gender spectrum differently? Or is it that they are fully uh, transitioning? And of course, the answer lies across all of those things. Um, we do see a very different um, level of acceptance among tweens and teens than we did Gen in the older or than we do in the older generations. So I think that's, um, you know, that we see the social shift and we can feel the social shift there. But there's a long history to um, the concept of gender questioning and the gender spectrum. And I think um, people are often surprised to find that this is not new to, you know, our society now, that there um, is literature that dates back hundreds and hundreds of years talking about the gender spectrum. And so, so much of what we need to do as the adults who are raising these kids today is to simply educate ourselves on the terms, on um, the experiences, on the ways to show kids love and respect. And as, if, as in every other topic in our book, 
Um, the more that we can educate ourselves, the more we can bring kids into conversation, which keeps them safer. And maybe, Vanessa, you'll pick up on the mental health issues. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we know that kids who identify as transgender are at higher risk for suicidality. They are also at higher risk for um, disordered eating and body image issues. And one of the most important things that we can do is have open lines of communication with our kids who are figuring out their gender identity. Um, one of the things we advise in the book is don't try to pin a kid down to a particular pronoun or a particular choice. Make space for them to be in exploration and to figure out who they are. Kids, all kids at this age, are managing a identity in flux and trying to make decisions. And if we can be essentially a warm, welcoming space for them to figure that out rather than dictating or requiring them that they decide or they know. The other thing that's really important for us to keep in mind is that research tells us that social media platforms are actually an incredibly important way for LGBTQ plus kids to connect to other kids like them that particularly for kids who don't live in communities who have this kind of support, maybe their schools don't have the same kind of resources or group support groups. Maybe they don't live in a community that's particularly welcoming. Online life becomes really important for these kids to find connection to others to whom they can talk about these things, share their struggles, share their joys, and make them feel less alone. Let's go to another caller. Uh, Bridget in San Leandro, you're on the air. Hi. Um, my daughter will be 11, and she's uh, in puberty, has not yet had her period, but she is uh, developmentally delayed, and we have the care and keeping of you, and she likes it. But explaining the nuances of sex to a kiddo who is feeling things, feeling things about boys, but is also developmentally delayed. How do you do that? Cara? This is a wonderful question that we get quite often, actually. Um, and um, the resources for kids who are developmentally delayed, while a little more limited, are out there. There are incredible podcasts available for parents who are um, navigating these waters um, and there are some some beautiful written resources, including websites. Ultimately, and you know this because you know your child best, you meet them where they are. And the type of language that you may choose to use, the frequency of the conversations, what teachable moments look like for different kids does depend on all sorts of things, including where they are developmentally. And so... Um, you know, there is a vulnerability among developmentally delayed kids. Um, we've we've actually covered a, a corner of this topic on our podcast, and we're going to be covering it more because it's so important. There is vulnerability when kids don't have the language to keep themselves safe. Um, so we know that when kids know their body parts, that um, predators stay away from them. They stay away from them because they know there's an adult in their life who's talking to them. So if you have a developmental delay and some of those very basic concepts when they're younger are not in place, that can make parents feel vulnerable. The same is true at 11 for bigger concepts like concepts around sex. So having these conversations 
clearly, frequently, and briefly. That's the way in. Um, long lectures don't land with anyone. Doesn't matter what their uh, their brain development looks like. So um, short and repetitive and um, engaging where you have kids come back to you and let you know what you talked about the last time and build on it from there. Those are the types of conversations that work. But this the fear of, of vulnerability here and the feel, fear of confusion here is very real, and it's very real for good reason. And I would just add, you know, this age, the 11-year-old, 12, 13, it's, it's the high point of crushes. And crushes are about attraction and interest and the butterflies in the stomach, and it's a really exciting time. And I think parents often wor- worry that their kids are going to act on th- those interests and those desires sexually. But in fact, all of our experience tells us that kids this age just enjoy the feeling of liking someone and maybe being liked back. And they're not necessarily interested in acting on it in any physical way. They just love the feeling. I mean, we all remember that feeling of butterflies in the stomach. It's it's amazing. And so we encourage parents to embrace that sense of crushes and sort of liking someone um, and letting go a little bit of the fear at this stage that it it translates into sexual activity. Yeah. I mean, we know that even though puberty is starting earlier, that sexual activity and sexual curiosity is not. We know that, in fact, um, the data shows that kids are delaying certain sexual activity. So the whole process is stretching out and there is time. That is so relieving. So even though porn and social media are, are much more available, that kids are not having sex earlier. As, as a parent, that's very relieving. Uh, let's go to Juna. <laughs> Juno, excuse me, Juno in San Francisco. You're on the air. Hi. Um, first of all, thank you so much for this conversation. I look forward to reading the book. I'm uh, an OBGYN and a, a queer person and a parent of two kids, um, including a six-year-old. Um, who currently identifies as a boy. And I always get asked by my kiddos' friends' parents um, about having a the conversation or that they'll come to me when, when it's time to have the conversation. I always kind of come back with, like, it's an ongoing thing. So I'm so glad that you're emphasizing that. And, and what I see is in adult patients who I take care of is this incredible fear and lack of knowing about their body through all the transitions, whether that's puberty or into pregnancy or menopause. And so I think this, what, what you're talking about of kind of demystifying and having ongoing conversations built on relationship and knowledge is so powerful because it really is a life course um, learning experience and, um, and kids can handle it. Like my kid knows about his anatomy and other people's anatomies and that, you know, kind of sperm and egg come together and sex and all these other things. And, you know, in age-appropriate ways, but he's curious. And we have two-minute conversations and it goes on. So awesome, thank you. Juno. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, let's squeeze another call in here. Uh, Hari in Dublin, you're on the air. Uh, hi, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, I have a, a child in the autism spectrum. Um, I think the earlier caller discussed, and thank you for all the uh, you know pointers about developmentally challenged kids, how they handle, and I'm looking forward to reading the book or checking your podcast to find more resources. Uh, but my question specifically right now is, because you've already addressed the previous caller, is um, 
how does physically or emotionally the hormonal changes does it affect kids in the spectrum differently than a neurotypical uh, is there things that we need to be aware of or educate ourselves as parents Cara this is Vanessa um okay. I'm just going to recommend to the caller and then Cara can talk about the brain science but um there's a wonderful podcast called Tilt Parenting um we actually guested on it and uh the host Debbie will be on our podcast but we really really encourage people to check out her podcast it is phenomenal and is specifically geared towards caregivers of neurodiverse kids yeah one of the places we are starving for more data is around this very question. So there aren't a lot of studies that are specifically focused on looking at neurodiverse kids and their timing of puberty onset versus um, non-neurodiverse kids. I I am very eager to see that data. But um, right now, knowing what I know, I don't know that I can come up with a rationale for why the timing would be different. Certainly, the conversations will look a little bit different. Um, But I, you know, we'll see what that data shows when it comes out. A listener writes, I'm a single mom. How can I approach my 11-year-old son about how to manage changes to his body and his hygiene, such as body odor, how to clean an uncircumcised penis and facial hair? As was mentioned, boys are very shy about showing their bodies at this age. Uh, Thoughts, Vanessa? So we love this question because we've lived this question and we teach this question every single day. And yes, Kids need to be reminded to use soap when they shower, for instance, or maybe even to put toothpaste on the toothbrush when they brush their teeth. Get really, really concrete with kids and be really specific and continue to check back in, maybe even on a daily basis. But specifically with boys, we want to remind caregivers, don't forget to talk about the emotional stuff. Don't forget to talk about love and respect. And, you know, with our sons, we often focus so much on consent and not getting them, quote unquote, in trouble. But there's so many beautiful emotions that boys have and conversations that boys want to be in. And um, one of the sex educators who we love and admire so much, Shafia Zaloom, who is a Bay Area educator, she reminds us all over and over not to forget about inserting love into the conversations we have with kids about their growing bodies, their changing relationships. And so, yes, hygiene on boys and also love in the conversation as well. Well, Jen writes, I have two teen boys. My 18-year-old attends a very progressive private high school in San Francisco and has received a very thorough sex education. My 15-year-old attends a Catholic all-boys high school that does not provide much information about sexual intercourse, consent, and such. So what are some good resources, besides his older brother, about all aspects of sex, especially consent? So we have a list of resources that we love on our website, uh, which is Order of Magnitude. Oh, sorry. That's our other website. Um, Umla, O-O-M-L-A, myoomla.com. And if you go to resources we love, you'll see a list. It points to resources like Educate Us, um, which is an incredible outlet that looks at um, not just um, how parents and adults can talk to kids about sex, but what the laws are across the country. They really vary from state to state and even from county to county. Also, the teeth, the enforcement around these laws really varies. So you can see how kids who are growing up under one roof and getting educated in the same city might get a very different education. 
We also love the organization Amaze.org because they have kid-appropriate videos on all different really complex topics, um, but they break them down and they're very relatable. And frankly, kids can read our book. There's nothing inappropriate or secret about what's in the book. So a kid who is at the reading level of 8th or 10th or 12th grade can certainly read the book and you could have like a family group discussion about it. Um, but there are tons and tons of resources. Amaze is our absolute favorite for a middle school kid. Real quickly before before we go, you have a list of things not to say, such as like, it's not a big deal <laughs> or calm down. Uh, so real quickly, what are a few things that parents should say, especially around these sort of mood swings or when they're sort of the kids losing it? So um, there's a lot that we can say that are not actually words. So I like to have parents practice the the murmur, the empathetic murmur that actually doesn't say any words. It sounds sort of like this. Oh. And that communicates so much to a kid. You're with them. You feel it. It stinks, whatever's going on. But it keeps you from lecturing them, telling them it's no big deal, and telling them to calm down. Um, the other way to do it is just to say something like, oh, I'm really sorry. And you can ask, do you want me to talk about it anymore? Or do you just want me to sit and listen? Again, as Car mentioned earlier, we want people to listen more and lecture less. Meet kids where they are. I'm 40-something, and I just told my mom to do that last night. I was like, Mom, I just need you to listen to me right now. So we've been talking about how to navigate modern puberty with the authors of the new book, This is So Awkward, Modern Puberty Explained. They are Cara Natterson and Vanessa Kroll-Bennett. They are the co-hosts of the Puberty Podcast. This has been such a fun hour. It has absolutely flown. Thank you both so much. Thank Unless you. Thanks for having us. <laughs> I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today again for Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for the next hour of Forum with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening 
because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.